Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is November the 9th, a new dawn, perhaps. A couple of months ago, we had Clarissa Ward on the show, the CNN's chief correspondent, who has written a book about her life. And we have another very distinguished journalist on the show today, another female journalist, uh, Maria Inahoso, the author of a new book called Once I Was You. Uh, everyone, I think, will be familiar with uh, Maria. She's one of America's most distinguished journalists, radio and television journalists. Uh, and her book, Once I Was You, is a memoir of love and hate in a torn America. Uh, we're actually very grateful for the Miami Book Fair for lending us uh, for lending us Maria. She's speaking today also uh, at the book fair. Uh, Maria, it seems as if this image of a torn America is central not only in your analysis of America, but in your autobiography. This is a story both of America and of you. What's torn in America? Well, what's torn actually is the policies, specifically regarding immigrants. Like, that's one thing I really wanted to get clear because, you know, I, I live a stone's throw couple of miles from uh, from the Statue of Liberty. She's telling us one thing about immigrants and immigration in this country. But the policy is something else. And actually, for a country that talks about being an immigrant-loving country, the torn part is the policies that have been created, actually, since the late 1800s to exclude immigrants to define immigrants as the other, to call us the alien, to call us outsiders. Um, it, is, um, it is a torn America that rests on anti-Indigenous hatred, anti-Black hatred, anti-immigrant hatred, and as a result, anti-Latino, anti-Asian hatred. Um, so there, we have to recognize, and I struggled a lot with the notion of putting hate, because I'm not a person who is filled with hate. I really don't move like that in the world. But I think to not say, call it for what it is, it would be a problem. We have to address, there is so much love in this country, but there is this other thing. And until we kind of talk about it and try to make peace with it, um, it's going to continue to be there. So that's that's what's torn. Of course, right now, um, there are people who feel like this is a torn America. And on the other hand, you have people who feel like there is a, um, there is a moment of moving forward without feeling attacked if you're Latino or Latina or an immigrant. So we've got a lot of repair to do. Um, but this is in terms of democracy and just kind of coming out and counting votes and people showing up. <clears throat> this is a moment, uh, I think, of a lot of love. 
the healing, I think, is really important. And, and I was, of course, struck in your, in your wonderful book, an, an, an intensely personal, confessional book on, on many levels. Of course, it's a critique of America, and we'll get to that. But it was also a story, or it is a story, about the, the, the tornness. I'm not sure if there's a word, tornness, in your own life. Mm. Uh, your own narrative, you're, you're incredibly confessional and honest, and, uh, and I'm sure it, it shocked many people, the book. Uh, I'm not sure if it's a book about love and hate in your own personal life. Uh, do you... Do you think it's positive? Do you see your life in that conventional American optimistic narrative? Because I wasn't sure. Sometimes I thought mm -hmm. it was a book about a, a girl who showed up in America and became one of America's most distinguished journalists. And on the other hand, the book is also about the intense pain of your life. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I feel very healed myself. I think that's part of you know, towards the end of the book, there's, there is resolution, you know, in response to kind of um, the mainstream media, maybe not having a space for me. I create my own media organization um, in response to coming to terms really in many ways um, captured because of the moment of Dr. Christine Blasey Ford in the Kavanaugh confirmations. Um, I feel like I'm a woman who was able to come to terms with her survivor, being a, a survivor of rape. <clears throat> I think that it is um, in many ways um, a, a, a story about trying to come to terms with being intersectional. You know, if, when you read the book, you see that my best friend is an African-American woman who traces her roots back to Ghana. She's my best friend, my godmother, my mentor. So we're talking about um, intersectionality. I'm a, a child of the 1960s and um, and the revolutionary movements of 1968, which feel very parallel to today. So um, me, myself, personally, I do feel healed and I do feel like this book helped me to heal. Um, I think there was, I mean, one of the things that comes up in the book, which people have found really fascinating, they're just like, why did you reveal to everybody that you suffer from the imposter syndrome? And I'm just like, because I would rather women not have to suffer from the imposter syndrome. So I, I do feel like there's resolution. That is what I'm trying to say. But I'm also saying like, in many ways, as you say, it's very deeply personal. Um, and, and when we resolve the internal tornness, to use your word, um, it helps us with the external. But thank you. I'm actually doing quite wonderfully because my husband never gave up on me. Um, that was the and most you never gave thing. up. I assume you never gave up on him. There's a lot of stuff about your husband. He sounds a remarkable <laughs> man too. The book is really about little girls. You begin with a little girl, another little girl in an airport in Texas. Uh, tell me about this little girl in McAllen International Airport in Texas <clears throat> that you stumbled across. Wow, I'm actually just having a moment because I, I can't believe you put up that that picture of the McAllen Airport. So I'm actually, because I haven't been there uh, since, you know, since the pandemic. So I'm just kind of looking at that and it's bringing back all kinds of memories. Yeah, so, you know, before the pandemic, when we used to fly around as if it was nothing, um, I was in that McAllen Airport at seven o'clock in the morning and I used to be 
a traveler who, <clears throat> you know, was on planes multiple times in a week. So I understood kind of body language in airport. And so in that airport, I saw a group of kids and one girl in particular, and they weren't, they weren't actually happy like most kids in an airport. And that's what drew me to her. Actually, her, <clears throat> her kind of zombie look of numbness. I think it was like dead on the outside, dead on the inside and alive on the outside or alive on the outside and dead on the inside. I mean, she was almost catatonic. And, and as a result, I was drawn to her. Um, I realized as I wrote um, that in the <clears throat> gentlest of ways, this very quiet conversation with this little girl from Guatemala who was being trafficked by paid for by government officials, that I was witnessing the greatest horror that we've lived through in the United States of America, the taking of children as a policy and as an act of punishment. And so <clears throat> in that moment when I'm trying to speak to the children, which I'm denied, not allowed to speak to children, why did I use the term trafficked? Because actually the definition of someone who's being trafficked is someone who does not know where they are going or who is taking them, uh, is told not to speak to anyone and does not have their identification on them. All of these describe these children who I saw, who were hence being trafficked. Um, and so in the end, I just, I started speaking out loud to them in Spanish to the children, hoping that they would hear me. And that's when I wrote that sentence, you know, I wanted you to see me. I wanted you to hear me, little girl. I wanted you to know that I see you because once I was you. And that was something that came up in the book. And one was I was you, of course, yeah, Maria, yeah. Um, because there's another little girl in the book that follows this tragic little girl that you see at McAllen Airport. And, and this little girl was at Dallas Airport, uh, what, yes. 40, 45 years, wow. 50 years earlier. <laughs> so tell me about this little girl who showed up from Mexico <laughs> at DFW Airport. So I found out <clears throat> it wasn't DFW. Oh, it wasn't? It was Love Field? It was... Well, it was, I don't know if it was Love Field or Dallas Airport, but it was definitely not DFW because that was built later. Okay. So, so yes, what happens there is that I come to this country with privilege. My father, may he rest in peace, was a medical doctor dedicated to research and helped to create the cochlear implant. My mother and the four of us kids were coming to meet my father in the year 1962. We were flying with green cards from Mexico City to Dallas, changing planes in Dallas, and then going to Chicago. And it was there in the Dallas airport that an immigration agent was checking our bodies, even though we had green cards. And that's when he told my mother, you, ma'am, you're able to make your way off to Chicago, take your three kids, but the little baby, we're going to keep her and put her into quarantine. Uh, my mother freaks out um, and starts screaming in the middle of the airport. Um, and I believe that's why the immigration agents gives, you know, says to my mother, okay, okay, take your daughter who we think has the measles. She has a rash. That's why we're going to put her into quarantine. But you know what? Take your baby and go. Because my mother started screaming because she had never heard anyone say, I'm going to take your child. This was not really all clear to me until all of us heard the screams of the babies, the toddlers, the children, when that story broke and we heard their cries from inside the cages. And my mother calls me now in her 80s and says, it could have been you 
they almost took you from me. And that was the moment when I realized why I have dedicated my life to reporting on this issue and how deep the, the trauma can go. And sometimes we don't even see the trauma, but it's still there. Support for this podcast comes from W.W. Norton, the independent and employee-owned publisher of The Light Ages, the surprising story of medieval science. In The Light Ages, Cambridge science historian Seb Falk takes us on a tour of the scientific and technological achievements of the Middle Ages through the eyes of one 14th century monk. An enlightening history, The Light Ages by Seb Falk argues that these times weren't so dark after all. Available wherever books are sold. Let me introduce a third little girl, uh, Maria. Uh, you mention in your book um, Schindler's List, and this is a famous image from, from the movie. Um, I, I found the book really, really searing in its critique of America. You, you make fairly explicit comparisons between America and Nazi Germany, and, 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 and it was quite convincing. Uh, are you convinced of that? Is there something of the Holocaust, or at least of the Nazi experience in these camps mm -hmm. on the border? So <clears throat> this is a hard one, right? Because remember the first detention camp that I visited was the year 1986. Right. Back then, they called those detention camps El Corralón, which means the corral. So now you have an image of people like cattle. That's why they called it the corral, because the men were out in the hot sun with a fence around them. Sound familiar? Um, you know, I went to Joe Arpaio, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who, of course, has lost consistently now in Arizona. He had a tent camp uh, where he had they had tents and people wearing striped suits and pink underwear so that they could be defined, seen from afar. Um, I've been to detention facilities along the border where people are being fed spoiled food with maggots. I have documented this one in particular the the description of Willacy County Regional Detention Facility. I found particularly appalling. It's all true. It's all oh, true. I, these I, are I, things, I, right? These are these are things that I witnessed, and that, and so this notion of calling them concentration camps, which is not the same thing as a death camp. I've had a lot of dialogue with people of the Jewish faith about this, and some agree and some disagree. So I'm very respectful about this. But there is a connection that I made because, as you know, you talk about the little girls. There was a little girl in me, Mexican from the south side of Chicago, who, when she understood what happened in the Holocaust, became completely obsessed with the Holocaust. And I was like, but, but I'm not Jewish. What happened? Why? Why is this? Why do I have this obsession? Um, it goes even to the point that you bring up. There is a young woman who I meet um, who had held, been held in one of these detention facilities, she's the one who says, I felt like I was in the movie The Schindler's List because we had all been stripped naked uh, and we were skinny 
and we were waiting for the showers. And she said, that reminded me of a scene from the Schindler's List. But to bring it all full circle, that policy of searching my body to see if I was dirty is tied back to policies of making sure that Mexican immigrants were clean coming into the United States. Laws on the book books in Texas until 1964. And so what they were doing in Texas was that they were checking our bodies as I was checked, but they were going one step further on the border. They were then taking our clothes, Mexican immigrant clothes, and gassing them to get rid of what they said was the lice and the fleas and et cetera. Who heard about this? The Nazis heard about this and they said, huh, let's take that gas. Let's take the construction of the rooms that you have built to put the clothes in and let's apply it to people. And then finally I understood how I was tied to Nazi Germany, how this country is tied to Nazi Germany, how Mexican immigrants have that relationship to Nazi Germany. Now, things in this country, we hope, are going to make a turn for the best. And for people who are saying, but, but to make such a comparison, again, with all due respect, right? Again, not death camps, although immigrants, children, babies, have died in these facilities. But women's uteruses have been taken in these facilities. Children are being raped in these facilities. I cannot tell you that babies are being raped because they don't know how to speak for themselves. But these places are industrial warehouses of constant torture. That is something that every single one of us has to come to terms with. Maria, one of the things I was struck with in the book um, was that you don't take cheap political shots. You barely mention Trump, if at all. And I, I think at least you argue, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, that Democratic uh, presidents, even Obama, is are just as guilty of what's happened as, as Reagan or, or either of the Bushes. Is that a fair analysis? Look, it was one of the parts of the book because I, you know, my editor said, you've got to write the history. And I was like, no. And she was, you know, you got to write the history. So it was not, it was not my favorite part of the work. But in doing it, I did have to have a certain reckoning. The Democrats and the Republicans both have consistently thrown immigrants under the bus. The last president who actually increased the numbers of immigrants and refugees allowed into this country by tens of thousands was George H.W. Bush, father. Um, Bill Clinton helped to build that wall and ran on an anti-immigrant ticket. So yes, a pox on both of their houses. And this was very painful, but as you're right, this isn't a cheap shot about, oh, well, the Democrats and the Republicans. It is rather, if there is a pox on both of your houses, and this is a country of immigrants, and increasingly Latinos and Latinas and Asians are the fastest growing demographics in this group, in this country, what are you going to do? And, and frankly, they're not going to do anything until we, the people writ large, consist, consistently hold them accountable. 
And that's the sad truth that, you know, given by their own devices, left to their own devices, these policies uh, will be terrible and will be enacted. It's only because people are pushing back. And that, again, goes to everybody's responsibility, not mine as a journalist, but everybody's responsibility uh, as being part of this country. It's not just little girls in your book. There are a lot of big girls, too, inspirational girls. A couple come to mind in particular, from my reading at least. Uh, Sonia uh, Sotomayor, uh, someone you were very close to or are very close to. Uh, what's so great about Sotomayor? Why should she be a model for particularly young women? <laughs> I love that question. What's so great about Sonia Sotomayor? <laughs> Well, that was a tough call for you, wasn't it? <laughs> Look, um, Sonia Sotomayor is the most powerful Puerto Rican woman in the world, uh, the most powerful Latina in the world in many ways because of where she sits on the Supreme Court. Um, I, I find Sonia to be such a breath of fresh air in terms of a Supreme Court justice who is honest and real and, you know, to a certain degree, accessible. Um I mean, I, I think the story about Sonia Sotomayor, and you should definitely read her memoir if you haven't. It's beautifully written. Well, we'll get her on the show. Sonia, if you're, if, if, if you're watching, you have no invitation. Okay, with, with or without your friend. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, Sonia's story is actually much more complicated than mine. You know, she was raised in the South Bronx, a uh, different class experience, raised in the projects. Um, raised with an alcoholic father. She had a lot to push through, and yet she did. And one of the things that Sonia told me, which uh, I think was just, it always stands out for me, and I repeat this very often to Latinos and Latinas, which is, Sonia said, the first act of discrimination that many of us are going to feel is actually our own discrimination against ourselves, where we tell ourselves, you can't do that. You're not good enough to do that. And that is one of the things that happens in my book that you see that consistently I was prepared to throw myself under the bus. I was the one who was saying, you can't do that. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not this enough. You're not that enough. And, um, and the truth is, is that we have to look at that straight up, acknowledge it, own it in order for us to move on. So, um, yes, I do love that you chose Sonia Sotomayor as one of the big girls uh, to focus on. Um, and, and I do find her to be quite an inspiration. Actually, Clarissa Ward, uh, your story and Clarissa's are very different, although you both worked, worked for CNN. Uh, but what you had, I think, in common was the fact that you both seemed to, well, the narrative at least was built around this absence of self-confidence and the narrative was one going from uh, lacking self-confidence to it, to achieving it. The other big girl who I really was struck with in the book is Harriet Tubman, who, uh, of course, is, again, I hope, familiar to all our viewers. Uh, what's I I'm not going to ask a really dumb question like, what's the big deal about <laughs> Tubman? But why is she in the book, uh, Maria? So I'm very lucky. I... I am Mexican, proud Mexican immigrant, U.S. citizen, but I grew up on the south side of Chicago, which is a black neighborhood in the 60s and 70s. And I moved to Harlem when I came to New York. Before I was in Washington Heights and then in Harlem. So for me, the black community is very much a part of my life. I married an Afro-Dominican man. Um, and so the black experience is just very central to me in understanding 
this country and my role in it. And I'm very lucky that I live in Harlem. And so uh, every morning when I used to go to the gym, I hope one day to return, but I would walk by the statue of Harriet Tubman right here in Harlem. Um, on her, you know, on her underground railroad, um, she is, it's a powerful statue of her, um, on top of, um, of a train of a caboose, not a caboose of actually the, the leading train. And she's just driving forward. And Harriet had these liberation dreams. I just shouted her out on my Twitter today. Um, she had liberation dreams as you know, or maybe not, you know, she was beaten when she was an enslaved young woman, uh, suffered a traumatic brain injury, and as a result, had these moments of like, whatever, seizures, or she would go into another plane. And it's in these places where she would imagine a world without slavery. And that's why she became involved in the Underground Railroad, one of the reasons. And this notion of having dreams that are limitless in this country freedom dreams, things that you can imagine that don't exist. That's why I love her so much. And she's not far away from another statue here who's not a woman, but one of my founding fathers, which is Frederick Douglass. So I'm very lucky to have those two statues within walking distance right here in Harlem. Uh, Maria, uh, leaving women and men, uh, one way you present yourself or one way someone you knew presented yourself is as a swallow someone who has achieved flight is that the core narrative of your book this ability to fly to leave one place and go somewhere else because i think that's the the inspirational part of the book the fact that of course we have these images i mean the the, the core metaphors in the book are built around airports of flying in and out but then you become a swallow. Is is that something that you're happy about? Oh my gosh, thank you so much for asking. Nobody has, has asked that question. So I'm just like having all kinds of feelings because it was a very important moment when as a little girl, my Mexican cousin Sergio would sing to me the song La Golondrina, which means a swallow. And he gave an image to me of that being beautiful. You know, when you grow up crossing borders, um, everybody who does that knows that you often feel that you're neither from one place nor the other. No eres ni de aquí ni de allá. And you feel out of place, out of sorts. Um, as, as a little girl, my cousin was saying, you're like a swallow. You, you just fly and you come back home. You always go, but come back. So uh, in my later life now, I've actually become a very miniature birder. I don't really even have good binoculars, but birds to me symbolize tremendous hope. They bring messages from the other side. And so I'm fascinated by just watching birds. So thank you so much because I hadn't really thought of myself as a swallow, but I'm getting ready to fly to Mexico on Friday, my first trip on a plane since March. And I'm going to take that image. And actually I'm going to really live in that place of of being a swallow, of being a bird that can come and go from different homes and still feel at home. So thank you for that image. I really appreciate it. And yes, I will see myself as a swallow now, again. Everyone needs to read this book. I would say that again at the end of every interview, but this one really is a special book, special journalist, special book, Once I Was You, a memoir of love and hate in a torn America. 
I think Maria will say it has a happy ending. I'm not so sure, but it has potentially a happy ending. In addition, Maria, to, to one side with you, this is uh, LitHub, so it's a, a book website. Anything else people should be reading in these weird times? Oh, definitely you should be reading um, Stamped <clears throat> by Ibram X. Kendi. Um, and you can read the adult version or the young adult version, <clears throat> which I just read the young adult version, which I thought was fabulous. There's a great book, um, She Came to Slay, which is about Harriet Tubman, actually. Um, I'm reading another book called What Would Frida Do about Frida Kahlo and for young Latinas. Um, so, yeah, I've been, I've sadly, I haven't been able to do a lot of reading because I've been doing so much talking about my own work and, and writing other things. So I've been watching a lot of dramas on television all of them full black casts so that's the other thing that i'm doing to just kind of keep myself entertained whether it's euphoria which is really intense or insecure or madam cj walker or green leaves or um all, all of those fabulous um films and television series that star black casts um i'm fascinated by that and hoping soon enough to see much more uh, dramas and work, literary work that involve Latinos and Latinas and immigrants. And my message simply is tell your stories. Maybe not everybody gets a book published, but please write your stories down, tell them, share them with your families, because these are American stories. These are not Latino stories. These are not immigrant stories. These are not Asian stories, Jewish stories. Yes, they are all of that. They are American stories, and we need to be telling them in this country. You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.